History of England, Chapter 12, Part 4 This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to find out how you can volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. History of England, from the accession of James II by Thomas Babington Macaulay. Chapter 12, Part 4 The pay of the soldiers was very small. The private had only threepence a day. One half only of this pittance was ever given him in money, and that half was often in arrear. But a far more seductive bait than his miserable stipend was the prospect of boundless license. If the government allowed him less than sufficed for his wants, it was not extreme to mark the means by which he supplied the deficiency. Though four-fifths of the population of Ireland were Celtic and Roman Catholic, more than four-fifths of the property of Ireland belonged to the Protestant Englishry. The garners, the sellers, above all the flocks and herds of the minority, were abandoned to the majority. Whatever the regular troops spared was devoured by bands of marauders, who overran almost every barony in the island. For the arming was now universal. No man dared to present himself at mass without some weapon. A pike? a long knife called a skin, or at the very least a strong ashen stake, pointed and hardened in the fire. The very women were exhorted by their spiritual directors to carry skins. Every smith, every carpenter, every cutler, was at constant work on guns and blades. It was scarcely possible to get a horse shot. If any Protestant artisan refused to assist in manufacture of implements, which were to be used against his nation and his religion, he was flung into prison. It seems probable that, at the end of February, at least a hundred thousand Irishmen were in arms. Near fifty thousand of them were soldiers. The rest were banditti, whose violence and licentiousness the government affected to disapprove, but did not really exert itself to suppress. The Protestants not only were not protected, but were not suffered to protect themselves. It was determined that they should be left unarmed in the midst of an armed and hostile population. A day was fixed on which they were to bring all their swords and firelocks to the parish churches, and it was notified that every Protestant house in which after that day a weapon should be found should be given up to be sacked by the soldiers. Bitter complaints were made that any enough might, by hiding a spearhead or an old gun-barrel in a corner of a mansion, bring utter ruin on the owner. Chief Justice Keating, himself a Protestant, and almost the only Protestant who still held a great place in Ireland, struggled courageously in the cause of justice and order against the united strength of the government and the populace. At the Wicklow Assizes of that spring, he, from the seat of judgment, set forth with great strength of language the miserable state of the country. Whole counties, he said, were devastated by a rabble resembling the vultures and ravens which followed the march of an army. Most of these wretches were not soldiers. They acted under no authority known to the law. Yet it was, he owned, but too evident that they were encouraged and screened by some who were in high command. How else could it be that a market overt for plunder should be held within a short distance of the capital? 
the stories which travellers told of the savage Hottentots near the Cape of Good Hope were realized in Leinster. Nothing was more common than for an honest man to lie down rich in flocks and herds acquired by the industry of a long life, and to wake a beggar. It was, however, to small purpose that Kidding attempted, in the midst of that fearful anarchy, to uphold the supremacy of the law. Priests and military chiefs appeared on the bench for the purpose of overrowing the judge and countenancing the robbers. One ruffian escaped, because no prosecutor dared to appear. Another declared that he had armed himself in conformity to the orders of his spiritual guide, and to the example of many persons of higher station than himself, whom he saw at that moment in court. Two only of the merry boys, as they were called, were convicted. The worst criminals escaped, and the chief justice indignantly told the jurymen that the guilt of the public ruin lay at their door. When such disorders prevailed in Wicklow, it is easy to imagine what must have been the state of districts more barbarous and more remote from the seat of government. Kitting appears to have been the only magistrate who strenuously exerted himself to put the law in force. Indeed, Nagent, the chief justice of the highest criminal court of the realm, declared on the bench at Cork that, without violence and spoliation, the intentions of the government could not be carried into effect, and that robbery must at that conjecture be tolerated as a necessary evil. The destruction of property which took place within a few weeks would be incredible, if it were not attested by witnesses unconnected with each other, and attached to very different interests. There is a close, and sometimes almost a verbal, agreement between the descriptions given by Protestants, who during that reign of terror escaped at the hazard of their lives to England, and the descriptions given by the envoys, commissaries, and captains of Lewis. All agreed in declaring that it would take many years to repair the waste which had been wrought in a few weeks by the armed peasantry. Some of the Saxon aristocracy had mansions richly furnished, and sideboards gorgeous with silver bowls and chargers. All this wealth disappeared. One house, in which there had been three thousand pounds worth of plate, was left without a spoon. But the chief riches of Ireland consisted in cattle. Innumerable flocks and herds covered the vast expanse of emerald meadow, saturated with the moisture of the Atlantic. More than one gentleman possessed twenty thousand sheep and four thousand oxen. The freebooters, who now overspread the country, belonged to a class which was accustomed to live on potatoes and survey, and which had always regarded meat as a luxury reserved for the rich. These men at first revelled in beef and mutton, as the savage invaders, who of old put down from the forests of the north on Italy, revelled in massic and Falernian wines. The Protestants described with contemptuous disgust the strange gluttony of their newly liberated slaves. The carcasses, half raw and half burnt to cinders, sometimes still bleeding, sometimes in a state of loathsome decay, were turned to pieces and swallowed, without salt, bread, or herbs. Those marauders who preferred boiled meat, being often in want of kettles, contrived to boil the steer in his own skin. An absurd tragicomedy is still extant, which was acted in this and the following year at some low theatre for the amusement of the English populace. 
A crowd of half-naked savages appeared on the stage, howling a Celtic song and dancing round an ox. They then proceeded to cut sticks out of the animal while still alive, and to fling the bleeding flesh on the coals. In truth, the barbarity and filthiness of the banquets of the rapparees was such as the dramatists of Grub Street could scarcely caricature. When land began, the plunderers generally ceased to devour, but continued to destroy. A peasant would kill a cow merely in order to get a pair of brooks. Often a whole flock of sheep, often a herd of fifty or sixty kine was slaughtered. The beasts were flayed, the fleeces and hides were carried away, and the bodies were left to poison the air. The French ambassador reported to his master that in six weeks fifty thousand horned cattle had been slain in this manner, and were rotting on the ground all over the country. The number of sheep that were butchered during the same time was popularly said to have been three or four hundred thousand. Any estimate which can now be framed of the value of the property destroyed during this fearful conflict of races must necessarily be very inexact. We are not, however, absolutely without materials for such an estimate. The Quakers were neither a very numerous nor a very opulent class. We can hardly suppose that they were more than a fiftieth part of the Protestant population of Ireland, or that they possessed more than a fiftieth part of the Protestant wealth of Ireland. They were undoubtedly better treated than any other Protestant sect. James had always been partial to them. They owned that Turconnell did his best to protect them, and they seemed to have found favour even in the sight of the Rapparees. Yet the Quakers computed their pecuniary losses at a hundred thousand pounds. In Leinster, Munster and Connaught it was utterly impossible for the English settlers, few as they were and dispersed, to offer any effectual resistance to the terrible outbreak of the aboriginal population. Charville, Mellow, Sligo fell into the hands of the natives. Bandon, where the Protestants had mastered in considerable force, was reduced by Lieutenant General McCarthy, an Irish officer who was descended from one of the most illustrious Celtic houses, and who had long served under a feigned name in the French army. The people of Kenmer held out in their little fastness till they were attacked by three thousand regular soldiers, and till it was known that several pieces of ordnance were coming to batter down the turf wall which surrounded the agent's house. Then at length a capitulation was concluded. The colonists were suffered to embark in a small vessel scantily supplied with food and water. They had no experienced navigator on board, but after a voyage of a fortnight, during which they were crowded together like slaves in Guinea's ship and suffered the extremity of thirst and hunger, they reached Bristol in safety. When such was the fate of the towns, it was evident that the country seats, which the Protestant landowners had recently fortified in the three southern provinces, could no longer be defended. Many families submitted, delivered up their arms, and thought themselves happy in escaping with life. But many resolute and high-spirited gentlemen and yeomen were determined to perish rather than yield. They packed up such valuable property as could easily be carried away, burned whatever they could not remove, and, well armed and mounted, set out for those spots in Ulster which were the strongholds of their race and of their faith. 
the flower of the Protestant population of Munster and Connaught, found shelter at Enniskillen. Whatever was bravest and most true-hearted in Leinster, took the road to Londonderry. The spirit of Enniskillen and Londonderry rose higher and higher to meet the danger. At both places the tidings of what had been done by the convention at Westminster were received with transports of joy. William and Mary were proclaimed at Enniskillen with unanimous enthusiasm, and with such pomp as the little town could furnish. Landy, who commanded at Londonderry, could not venture to oppose himself to the general sentiment of the citizens and of his own soldiers. He therefore gave in his adhesion to the new government, and signed a declaration by which he bound himself to stand by that government, on pain of being considered a coward and a traitor. A vessel from England soon brought a commission from William and Mary, which confirmed him in his office. To reduce the Protestants of Ulster to submission before Ed could arrive from England was now the chief object of Tyrconnell. A great force was ordered to move northward, under the command of Richard Hamilton. This man had violated all the obligations which are held most sacred by gentlemen and soldiers, had broken faith with his friends the Temples, had forfeited his military peril, and was now not ashamed to take the field as a general against the government to which he was bound to render himself up as a prisoner. His march left on the face of the country traces which the most careless eye could not, during many years, fail to discern. His army was accompanied by a rabble, such as Kitting had well compared to the unclean birds of prey, which swarm wherever the scent of carrion is strong. The general professed himself anxious to save from ruin and outrage all Protestants who remained quietly at their homes, and he most readily gave them protections tinder his hand. But these protections proved of no avail, and he was forced to own that whatever power he might be able to exercise over his soldiers, he could not keep order among the mob of camp followers. The country behind him was a wilderness, and soon the country before him became equally desolate, for at the fame of his approach, the colonists burned their furniture, pulled down their houses, and retreated northward. Some of them attempted to make a stand at Dromore, but were broken and scattered. Then the flight became wild and tumultuous. The fugitives broke down the bridges and burned the ferryboats. Whole towns, the seats of the Protestant population, were left in ruins without one inhabitant. The people of Omag destroyed their own dwelling so utterly that no roof was left to shelter the enemy from the rain and wind. The people of Kevin migrated in one body to Anenskillen. The day was wet and stormy. The road was deep in mire. It was a piteous sight to see, mingled with the armed men, the women and children weeping, famished and toiling through the mud up to their knees. All Lisburn fled to Antrim, and as the foes drew nearer, all Lisburn and Antrim together came pouring into Londonderry. Thirty thousand Protestants, of both sexes and of every age, were crowded behind the bulwarks of the city of refuge. There at length, on the verge of the ocean, hunted to the last asylum and baited into a mood, in which men may be destroyed, but will not easily be subjugated, the imperial race turned the spirit to bay. Meanwhile, Mountjoy and Rice had arrived in France. 
Mountjoy was instantly put under arrest and thrown into the Bastille. James determined to comply with the invitation which Rice had brought, and applied to Louis for the help of the French army. But Louis, though he showed as to all things which concerned the personal dignity and comfort of his royal guests, a delicacy even romantic, and a liberality approaching to profession, was unwilling to send a large body of troops to Ireland. He saw that France would have to maintain a long war on the continent against a formidable coalition. Her expenditure must be immense, and, great as were her resources, he felt it to be important that nothing should be wasted. He doubtless regarded with sincere commiseration and goodwill the unfortunate exiles to whom he had given so princely a welcome. Yet, neither commiseration nor goodwill could prevent him from speedily discovering that his brother of England was the dullest and most perverse of human beings. The folly of James, his incapacity to read the characters of men and the signs of the times, his obstinacy always most offensively displayed when wisdom enjoyed concession, his vacillation always exhibited most pitiably in emergencies which required firmness, had made him an outcast from England, and might, if his counsels were blindly followed, bring great calamities on France. As a legitimate sovereign expelled by rebels, as a confessor of the true faith persecuted by heretics, as a near kinsman of the house of Bourbon, who had seated himself on the hearth of that house, he was entitled to hospitality, to tenderness, to respect. It was fit that he should have a stately palace and a spacious forest, that the household troops should salute him with the highest military honours, that he should have at his command all the hounds of the Grand Huntsman and all the hawks of the Grand Falconer. But, when a prince, who at the head of a great fleet and army, had lost an empire without striking a blow, undertook to furnish plans for naval and military expeditions, when a prince who had been undone by his profound ignorance of the temper of his own countrymen, of his own soldiers, of his own domestics, of his own children, undertook to answer for the zeal and fidelity of the Irish people, whose language he could not speak, and on whose land he had never set his foot, it was necessary to receive his suggestions with caution. Such were the sentiments of Lewis and in these sentiments he was confirmed by his minister of war Levois, who on private as well as on public grounds was unwilling that James should be accompanied by a large military force. Levois hated Lausanne. Lausanne was favourite at Saint-Germain. He wore a garter, a badge of honour, which has very seldom been conferred on aliens which were not sovereign princes. It was believed indeed at the French court that, in order to distinguish him from the other knights of the most illustrious of European orders, he had been decorated with that very George which Charles I had, on the scaffold, put into the hands of Jackson. Lausanne had been encouraged to hope that, if French forces were sent to Ireland, he should command them, and this ambitious hope Levois was bent on disappointing. An army was therefore for the present refused, but everything else was granted. The Brest fleet was ordered to be in readiness to sail. Arms for ten thousand men and great quantities of ammunition were put on board. 
about four hundred captains, lieutenants, cadets, and gunners were selected for the important service of organizing and disciplining the Irish levies. The chief command was held by a veteran warrior, the Count of Rosen. Under him were Maumont, who held the rank of lieutenant-general, and a brigadier named Poussignon. Five hundred thousand crowns in gold, equivalent to about a hundred and twelve thousand pounds sterling, were sent to Brest. For James' personal comforts, provision was made with anxiety resembling that of a tender mother equipping her son for a first campaign. The cabin furniture, the camp furniture, the tents, the bedding, the plate, were luxurious and superb. Nothing which could be agreeable or useful to the exile was too costly for the munificence, or too trifling for the attention of his gracious and splendid host. On the 15th of February, James spent a farewell visit to Versailles. He was conducted round the buildings and plantations with every mark of respect and kindness. The fountains played in his honour. It was the season of the carnival, and never had the vast palace and the sumptuous gardens presented a gayer aspect. In the evening the two kings, after a long and earnest conference in private, made their appearance before a splendid circle of lords and ladies. I hope, said Louis, in his noblest and most winning manner, that we are about to part, never to meet again in this world. That is the best wish that I can form for you. But, if any evil chance should force you to return, be assured that you will find me to the last such as you have found me hitherto. On the 17th, Louis paid in return a farewell visit to Saint-Germain. At the moment of the parting embrace, he said, with his most amiable smile, We have forgotten one thing, a cuirass for yourself. You shall have mine. The cuirass was brought, and suggested to the wits of the court ingenious allusions to the Vulcanian panoply which Achilles lent to his feebler friend. James set out for Brest, and his wife, overcome with sickness and sorrow, shut herself up with her child to weep and pray. James was accompanied or speedily followed by several of his own subjects, among whom the most distinguished were his son Berwick, Cartwright, Bishop of Chester, Powys, Dover, and Melfort. Of all the retinue, none was so odious to the people of Great Britain as Melfort. He was an apostate, he was believed by many to be an insincere apostate, and the insolent, arbitrary, and menacing language of his state papers disgusted even the Jacobites. He was therefore a favourite with his master, for to James unpopularity, obstinacy, and implacability were the greatest recommendations that a statesman could have. What Frenchman should attend the King of England in the character of ambassador had been the subject of grave deliberation at Versailles. Barillon could not be passed over without a marked slide. But his self-indulgent habits, his want of energy, and, above all, the credulity with which he had listened to the professions of Sunderland, had made an unfavourable impression on the mind of Lewis. What was to be done in Ireland was not work for a trifler or a dupe. The agent of France in that kingdom must be equal to much more than the ordinary functions of an envoy. It would be his right and his duty to offer advice touching every part of the political and military administration of the country in which he would represent the most powerful 
and the most beneficent of Alice. Barillon was therefore passed over. He affected to bear his disgrace with composure. His political career, though it had brought great calamities both on the house of Stuart and on the house of Bourbon, had been by no means unprofitable to himself. He was old, he said, he was fat. He did not envy younger men the honour of living on potatoes and whisky among the Irish bogs. He would try to console himself with partridges, with champagne, and with the society of the wittest men and prettiest women of Paris. It was rumoured, however, that he was tortured by painful emotions which he was studious to conceal. His health and spirits failed, and he tried to find consolation in religious duties. Some people were much edified by the piety of the old voluptuary, but others attributed his death, which took place not long after his retreat from public life, to shame and vexation. End of part four.